Today we're joined by a developer who's made an impact on almost every other Roblox developer with his Roblox Studio plugins, open source work, and interning with Roblox to improve the studio experience. He's also made some pretty cool games and tech demos. It's a bit of a technical one, so let's go Beyond the Blocks. Hello and welcome to Beyond the Blocks, a podcast all about the Roblox platform and game development. I am of course your host Bantech and we're joined by Quenty today. So hello Quenty and how are you? Doing well. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing very well, thank you. It's it's great to have you on. You're, in my opinion, a household name, at least amongst developers, both old and new. And even people who don't, you know, immediately recognise your name have probably had some interaction with a plugin you've developed to help improve their workflow, or read an article of yours which helped them understand more about the Roblox engine. But as with all of our guests, I like to take a trip down memory lane and ask a little bit about your history on the platform. So when did you join and what were the early days of Quenty like? So I joined in 2009. A uh, friend showed me Roblox, right? I think I played an obstacle course first. So this was before GUIs had been added and a ton of other stuff. And I played a few games and then I tried to start making things because that was the main value proposition that my friend had sold me on. And so that's kind of what drives me to create things on Roblox. It's really fun. It's basically infinite Legos. So there's been a lot of stuff that I've done past then. I guess relevant benchmarks, it was lots of scripter forums as many people around our generation ended up doing making and learning like lots of new programming things is always interesting i think in 2012 or 13 or 14 somewhere around there like four or five years after i'd been on roblox i started doing endorsed models for roblox so some of those were in the toolbox until very recently additionally in 2016, I made a game called Whatever Floats Your Boat. And then I was away at Scout Camp when I was, like, after that got released, that blew up. So that was really cool. And then in 20, no, that was like 2014. Because 2016, I interned at Roblox on a studio team and implemented several features for Roblox. So stuff like clicking on the output window to go to the error in the code, the like increment values in the top. So when you like, rotate or drag something, those like text boxes there that you can type into. Several other features, uh, like the wait for child callback timeout thing. So that was a really good experience. And then I also did tons of event games during this time for like sponsored Roblox games. And then more recently in 2020, I accelerated at Roblox. It was supposed to just be for a spring accelerator, but this is right when COVID hit. So did two sessions of that. Now I'm working at Microsoft full-time and on the side during the accelerator program, we made a game called Ragdoll Sim in like eight hours. And so that is doing very well. One of the people I met when accelerating, Martin, is maintaining that game right now. And then we provide like technical advice and other things. Also more recently around last December, we made another game in like 12 hours called Would You Quiz, which got really popular. So that's been very cool. Um, and then since Roblox is more of a side hobby thing, I mean, it's making money, but like, because I've been working full time, I haven't had as much time to work on Roblox things, but the last six months or year have been 
pulling out all of my code into reusable packages. And we're hoping to release a new game pretty soon with these. So that's sort of a rundown of some of the stuff I've done. I guess I've also made a lot of plugins and some tools that people use. Yeah, it's awesome. It's safe to say that you've done a lot on Roblox <laughs> over the years. I mean, you've even written some great articles as well, some of which are very useful. Like I say, some people will have read them to help understand certain things on the platform, whether that be sort of network ownership and things like that. But one article that you have on Medium that I think is really important is titled Never Be Bored. It's probably more of a statement than an article, but it's about having fun when building your games. Is that how you've stayed motivated on the platform and how you've created so many things over your time here? Yeah, I think it's especially maybe even more important now to think about this, but I wrote this in like 2015 or something about just like making lots of things and basically always creating things for fun, not just because you think it's going to do well. And I think as for many people, Roblox turns into a job more than just a hobby. Um, you can lose some of that enjoyment of just creating things for the sake of creating things. And that's not very fun, I guess. So I think just keeping that in mind and considering that is is good. Yeah, definitely. I think one of the things that stands out most and where a lot of people will know you from is from the tools and, and the plugins and sort of the open source stuff that you've done over the years. And obviously that's not necessarily going to directly earn you any money and things like that. I assume they're things that you find fun, but kind of what was the driving goal behind kind of creating all those different plugins and tools? Yeah, so basically when you're developing, usually my goal is to not make a good tool or plugin because I want to go make a game that people will play. But inevitably you run into situations where you don't have the tools you need to make what you're trying to make, or you realize that there's an opportunity in front of you. A good example is there's a part to terrain plugin that I made like four or five years ago at this point. Is it that old? Yeah, I think it's that old. Where you press like the B button and it converts the Roblox part into a terrain. And this is very valuable because it lets you kind of sculpt out on a large scale what your terrain's gonna look like. So the large valleys and hills and mountains that you might have, and then go back in with the regular terrain tools and fill them in with a brush. Whereas if you use the fine grained terrain tools initially to grow out that terrain, it's not going to look like a natural landscape. And so for a long time, I was using the command line to just convert parts into terrain, but this got really like annoying after a while. And so I eventually made a plugin and then basically, if you release a plugin, there's like no real cost to making it open source. I mean, I guess you can assume at some point that you're giving your competitive advantage to other people, but I'm a big believer in rising flood or whatever lifts all boats. So the success of Roblox has been really good for me and like basically everyone. And so even though as a proportion, the games that I've made have probably been an increasingly small portion of Roblox's overall user base or player count. The total amount of people engaging in these games has gone up over the years because the platform is better. And it's very easy, well, not easy, but it is very possible to have large impact on the platform by making things open source that you've already made. And I really believe in like empowering other people in this way. So like for the ragdoll game that we made, the like core of that is actually open source. Martin is not very happy about this, but it is there for people to use. And it's been like that before we made the game. 
That's awesome. Yeah, it definitely uh, empowers developers. Like I say, a lot of people will have used the tools without necessarily realizing. You mentioned part to terrain. You've got your class converter plugin that I use all the time, mostly for converting models into folders and things like that, but very, very useful. Uh, Q command util, uh, like that's one that a lot of people use, particularly before those increments you were on about got added to the studio tools. It's very useful to be able to move and, and uh, resize parts using that. Yeah, and I, I guess I will point out for those tools specifically, I did not originally make like the Q command util thing. That was like Anna Minus made that. And then I just like reskinned it into the feature set that I needed. These are usually labeled on plugins, but parts of terrain and stuff is stuff that I made by myself. Got you. And even towards sort of frameworks like Nevermore Engine as well. What, I mean, do you want to explain Nevermore Engine and kind of how that works? Yeah, so it's not supposed to be a framework, although it ends up being more framework-y than I want. And it's not as well documented as I want either. But these are all like, these are things I'm thinking about right now. Basically, Nevermore is a collection of libraries and a, li a module loader. And it's very old, like 2012, 2013, before module scripts even existed. So it used to do more things. And then as Roblox has basically added features to the platform, I've been able to subtract them from this open source repository. But what it is, is it's a collection of all the reusable code that I've deemed to open source that's used across multiple projects. The last big push has been modularizing these packages so you don't have to include all of the code into your game and like supporting versioned packages basically. And these enable us to maintain a large amount of games and hopefully more coming soon and provide like quick game development and the goal is to reduce the time it makes to make a really good game to as little as possible. And a lot of this is having this reusable library. It also means that when someone is looking on how to do something or what like at least my coding practices look like, I can link them directly to the source code and explain, oh yes, I've solved this problem before. Here's how I did it. This is potentially a good way to solve this problem. Or they'll be able to use the code directly. And I think that's really valuable because it's sometimes hard to find high quality code. I think another interesting thing is I'm helping run this open source Discord server, which has lots of like technical discussion, which is like very fun because it's there's like really been an explosion of open source development on Roblox in the last few years. And encouraging that's really important to me. So I think that's really exciting. Uh, and I think there's lots of people who are realizing that they can give back to the community and develop open source things. And this is actually like a, a thing that like companies in general will want to be doing. And so that's like very cool. As if all of that stuff wasn't enough as well, you've obviously done endorsed models for Roblox. What kind of models have you created? Have they also been sort of tools and plugins or, or other stuff as well? Yeah, so there's a few very recognizable models and things you'll find on Roblox that I've made. Maybe one of the more recognizable ones is if you go into a new place, there's like several different icons. And one of those is a screenshot from a pirate game that I made that was an open source template. And so I'll see that everywhere, which is pretty cute. You also see the like pine tree that I made. And I actually got that tree generation code off of someone and then modified it. So someone, I don't even remember who it was at this point, but that's like a generated tree that people will put in their games. You'll see this like watchtower that I built too is pretty iconic. There's like a crate, I guess. There's a few other models that you'll see around. Um, these have been de-emphasized recently in the toolbox. You may not see them anymore, but a lot of people who have developed in the last like five or 10 years will notice them, which is fun. So 
Awesome. Yep, that's the endorsed models. There's also the endorsed template place, which is the Pirate Island one. All of them feel a little bit dated now, but they're still great template models to use. Awesome. How, how have you found that all of these kind of tools and, and models and all of that, how have you found that those have affected your own projects and your own games and sort of work that you do that isn't necessarily open? It's quite fun to see like assets or creations I've made in other things. And I think just getting feedback from people has been good. I guess in general, having this library open source can be good if people are using it and then onboarding people onto existing projects or games can be better. I have not taken advantage of this very much because I really do not know who is using my open source stuff and I do not know how they're using it or what patterns or methods they're using from it. So it's hard to know. And then there's a lot of patterns that I haven't documented very well. So that makes it less accessible for people, but it's something I'm thinking about. Yeah, I don't know, it's good overall. It's good to have like some name recognition too, because then people will know sort of what you've made and then you can have conversations about it. So that's fun. Yeah, I think you definitely created a bit of a Quenty brand around sort of all these tools and stuff. And so when someone then sees the game that you've made, I suppose they're they're expecting some pretty good quality based on the coding that is obviously freely available for everyone as well. I assume when you joined Roblox, you weren't necessarily as good at coding as you are now. Did you start learning to program on Roblox or did you start before that? And if so, what kind of kickstarted your programming career? Yeah, I started to learn programming on Roblox and for probably three to four to five years, that's like the only place I really learned programming from. So it's definitely been fun learning programming through Roblox. And of course, you like you look at other resources and stuff online. Eventually in high school, I like kind of reluctantly took a programming class and that was really good. And so I was exposed to other programming languages and other ideas of which like it's always good. And then I went to school for computer engineering. And so I learned a lot more programming in college and then internships have been fantastic. And now there's like interesting cross work between like what I, I do on Roblox and then like what I apply to my day job and then back and forth. Because like on Roblox, you're implementing almost everything yourself in terms of the code infrastructure. I mean, Roblox exists as a great platform that does much of the work for you, but then you end up implementing a lot of primitives. Uh, and then conversely at work, there's lots of patterns that have been designed to scale to many people working on projects. And that's also like fascinating uh, and like stuff that Roblox developers are still figuring out. And so it's been very fun, like looking at these two different worlds and then doing internships and just learning from as many places and things that I can. That's a really interesting point because I also started a software job recently and I've definitely found the same in terms of it is quite different to developing on Roblox, especially because on Roblox, even when you're necessarily doing things that are open source, you're not necessarily building it with a massive amount of maintainability and sort of with, you know, massive consideration to other people needing to use it and understand it. And obviously, you need to build with that when you are at a big software company. Obviously, Microsoft is massive and it's a very different kind of frame of mind when you approach it. Yeah. How, how have you found it? Yeah, I guess an interesting point here is I don't think it has to be like this. For example, Nevermore at this point is very maintainable and very interoperable. And then the cost is, of course, now you have to teach all these patterns to people who want to contribute to that. But I would say as Roblox developers age up and find jobs at other places, even if it's just to learn 
and then come back, they'll like understand why source control is really good or package managers or um, like why we would abstract it in this way or why we jump through certain hoops. And then sometimes it's like maybe the software engineering world is is wrong or Roblox has things to offer to the software engineering world where it's like, oh, maybe that hoop we're jumping through is actually really expensive and preventing us from iterating quickly on creating new things. But I think there's still a lot of learning that I want to do around like good software engineering, good cross collaboration among many teams and people and designing systems to scale in that way too. And so this last six to 12 months of like refactoring Nevermore have led me to that. And I'm now able to install like the cars into like any game in like 30 seconds, or I'm able to install like my lighting system into any game for like the band system or permissions or the commanding system, or, you know, there's a tons of different like packages basically that I'm able to now reuse across games. And it's not like we were already reusing them, but this in this case, you end up naturally developing them because that's how the architecture is. And you end up being able to reuse them immediately. And so this is something I'm thinking a lot about. And I think it's a really interesting thing because I think there is lots of space to basically make Roblox more reusable, to be able to truly share or interrupt between systems and to not have to re-implement like a pet system every time I make a new game. And I think there's lots of other new companies on Roblox who are thinking the same thing. So it's going to be exciting. Have you made use of Louie U and some of the extra features that that provides when you've been refactoring? And do you think that Louie U might sort of help bridge that gap and kind of introduce better coding practices, particularly with uh, kind of typecasting and stuff that Lua uh, itself is, is missing? Yeah, so typing is going to be really essential here. Because my tooling, the open source tooling is not quite there yet, although it's being worked on. And so I do not have type bindings for my code right now in Luau. However, this is something I'm planning on doing and I've positioned my code to handle typing. Uh, there's also TypeScript bindings for a lot of my modules that have been provided by like other people in the community, which is pretty good. So I'm just waiting until the tooling catches up because I don't want to go build my own like language server or whatever. And I kind of assume someone else will go do it for me. This is the great part about open source. <laughs> cool. Right. I thought also we could go into a bit more about the games that you've developed, particularly one that stands out is Whatever Floats Your Boat, which is absolutely massive and has 61 million visits at the moment. Just tell us a little bit about that game and kind of the premise behind it. Yeah, so it's this survival game where you build a boat and then it uses Roblox's physics to let you, like basically it'll float around and then there's tons of interactive things which weren't originally there. So you can like drive your boat around, you can like fire cannons, you can do a ton of other stuff. And then people will build pretty crazy interactive designs like battleships or planes or like, I don't know, you see like a giant dinosaur when you join the game. So the game was a lot more popular a while ago, and I haven't successfully really translated it into the mobile and tablet space, which is fine. But it is like a very cool game because a lot of those creators who originally played the game are now coming onto Roblox and creatively making games like as developers, basically. So because the game is so creative and also like interactive in terms of problem solving and physics and creation, it ends up leading to lots of players 
basically aging up into the developer community, which has been fun. Overall, I'm just like very impressed with everything that the community ends up building. And like eventually I'll probably end up remaking it to be mobile friendly and have like, there's a lot of game design problems that are inherent in the design that I've learned now are like not good, but yeah, I don't know. It's definitely a cool game and it's very recognizable because it has my name on it. Yeah, absolutely. So you've worked on a lot of games and and tools and things like that, but there aren't that many that just straight up your name on it and whatever floats your boat is one of those. What was kind of the original thing that made you want to create whatever floats your boat? Kind of what sparked that idea and and why did you make it on your own account as a personal game? I mean, this was in 2014. And so at this point, a groups were not as good of a place to put games. And I really wish it wasn't a group now because it's become very hard to transfer maintenance and like developer ownership over to community members who are interested in doing so. But basically groups were not clearly like there were some security issues with groups basically at that point, I believe. And it wasn't clear if you should create them on your profile or group. So people just put them on profiles in general then. And then... The creation process, yeah. So I was basically, it was like junior year of high school and I was thinking, oh, if I want to put Roblox on my resume for college applications, I better make something that's popular because I'll be applying for college's senior year. And so I made whatever floats your boat after Magnalite showed me like a prototype and I got permission from them to like make the same game, which I found out later is based upon like a Gmod flood game, I think. So it's pretty similar, but I didn't have, I like indirect reference to that. So I make that and then leave and it gets popular. But I also just really like building in survival games and there's sort of a lack of them, or there was then and there is now uh, compared to like the original Roblox in 2011 to 2010. And so that was like the other inspiration was to to make a game that you could be more creative in and create things. It's definitely reminiscent of sort of original Roblox, you know, I'm talking like 2008, 2009, where it definitely had that sandbox focus, um, you know, with sort of play solo being a button on the website where you'd just enter your game and could build and then save what you'd built in, you know, 3D world with your character there destroying blocks and, and doing all sorts a lot of that's been lost as it become more of a games platform. And so I think these sandbox games are really, really cool that sort of restore some of that original feeling of what Roblox was like. Yeah, creating games that will onboard creators onto Roblox's creative engine is something I'm really interested in. And I think whatever Fulcher Boat is good about it, but it does not achieve that goal as much as I would like. So there's lots of space for that, but... I have limited time to create things, so I'm focusing on a few things right now that I think will be successful uh, and like refactoring code and whatnot too. So yeah, maybe one of the more interesting things is we have like a pretty extensive band system because people will build things and we'll have to moderate what they've built. So that's like a fun tech thing on Quincy.org. So you can like log in and like ban people remotely from the website, which is very fun infrastructure and like totally not necessary. So like that's been very fun. Awesome. I wanted to contrast whatever floats your boat to another project that's uh, sort of under your name, but this time in in a group called Quenty Studios, um, and that's Windlight Bay that I think you used an accelerator project to work on as well. Now that is quite different to whatever floats your boat as a concept as well, but also 
you know, just hasn't received quite as many visits, hasn't taken off in the same way that whatever floats your boat has. Why do you think that is? And, you know, what are sort of the positives and negatives associated with Windlight Bay? Oh, yeah. So Windlight Bay is basically a giant tech demo. I mean, that's not really true, but it's kind of how it ended up being. There's like, like I've done lots of retrospectives on this. And my take here is basically I did not design the game well from a game design perspective. And I was very aware of this while making it. But you've got this like dream as a kid where you like really want to go make a game with interesting things. And you're like, yeah, there'll be boats and there'll be cool mountains and you'll be able to craft things and like you'll transport cargo and like it'll be really cute. And so you have all these like ideas in your mind, but you don't think about how they're going to combine into a game. And so I went and built all of the technology to go do this with like some game design on top of it. But in reality, I was just implementing like a ton of stuff that I wanted to implement. And I've been pulling that stuff out over the last year into packages for reuse. But there's like really cute dialogue. There's NPCs that run around with behavior trees. There's like seagulls that fly around. There's like a building system that's like all diegetic in the world. So you drag your like walls over and your windows over and you snap them together and it builds a house for you. It's like lots of cool technology, lots of cool ideas in it. A very pretty game too. But like the game design was not there, but it's like very cool. So that was our accelerator project. And then out of that, we've pulled Ragdoll Sim, which has like 110 million visits in the last like year and a half. And Would You Quiz, which has like 10 or 12 million visits. And those are proving like this Ragdoll system plus some other interaction things that I built. And then uh, Would You Quiz like is a test bed for our dialogue system. And so the goal is to make more of these games that prove out individual pieces of technology while also having like large player counts. And then eventually someday I'll just have all the technology to go build like a well-designed game in the vein of Windlight Bay. And that'll be really good. But that's sort of how it went down. It was definitely a good experience, but it did not like succeed in terms of like having lots of players because we did not finish it and we knew we weren't really going to finish it either. Yeah, there is lots of thought put into that. And I'm still got lots of ideas from that that I'm going to implement eventually. I think it's really interesting because a lot of developers, particularly those who are new to the platform and, you know, doing it for fun and things like that, will run into this sort of issue where, you know, they, they have a really cool idea of some really interesting features and some really interesting things that they want to put in a game. will pour lots and lots of time into it and be upset that it doesn't obviously turn out to be a big success because they've not necessarily thought about those game design elements that bring the players and keep them. I think it's really, really cool that you are obviously pulling the individual features out of it and the fact that you did go on to make Ragdoll Sim and uh, Would You Quiz. I think it's really sort of inspiring to the new developers really that you you know can learn from the failures and pull bits and pieces out of them, reuse them uh, and turn it into other successes sort of based off the learning from that. I think it's important to recognize that there's only a few people on Roblox who can consistently make things that are successful. And like, even then it's very, it's like lots of work basically. So to consistently release or make a game is like a skill upon itself. And most people don't even get to release their stuff. It's also, I think it may not be obvious from the outside, but something like 95% of accelerator projects fail to release in any meaningful way. 
and get popular, which is, I guess, from one perspective, the goal of accelerator projects. But I think if that's the goal, then it's like a big failure of a program. And I do not think that's the case at all. I think it's like a great space to go explore creating things and like learning new techniques and like really pushing Roblox to the limit. And I've developed like many foundational tools and experiences and ideas from working on Windlight Bay and pushing the platform to its limit, basically. And so it's still very valuable. That's fascinating about the accelerator projects. I didn't realize the stats were sort of that far in sort of the favor of not releasing. But I think it's it's good. It, it highlights the fact that you don't have to release a game to have learned something and had a good time. And obviously you can use that, like I say, to springboard future ideas and future games. So it's really, really good to hear. So we've got a community question that I think would be great to get your perspective on. And it's something I think a lot of devs struggle with. So this is from Minion Jai 8. Basically, they're asking about the game performance and specifically memory and how do you deal with the low amounts of RAM. So for context, basically, I think at this point, you should be designing your games just for mobile if you have to pick a platform, which is very hard for many veteran Roblox developers to reason about. And mobile devices are on a variance of quality and memory usage. For example, a new iPhone has excellent memory and performance. Whereas like a low-end tablet, even like a new Amazon Fire tablet is going to immediately suffer even on a base plate. So you have very limited memory to make your game function and the performance is actually a really big feature. And so in order to do this, there's a lot of techniques that we spent a lot of time in Winlight Bay developing to let our game world be like massive, like 20,000 by 20,000 studs while still functioning on every possible device that will run an empty base plate. And so in order to do this, the first thing is everything is streaming enabled. We've actually found in Ragdoll Sim, this is quite problematic. The UX is like worse because of streaming, but it lets these low end devices function. So we have not been able to turn it off. And long term streaming is the future of Roblox and is going to be required eventually. At least that's what I'm assuming. So there were like several interesting and new programming techniques developed during the course of Winlight Bay to make streaming function properly. Uh, so streaming is really big. Also, we make sure we don't memory leak. There's a lot of this we covered in our the RDC talk I did in like 2020 on, it was like with me and like several other people on like programming patterns that people use. And uh, most of these are, are to deal with the performance implications of running out of memory. Other things we did, we were very set on using low to no textures because texture square scales quadratically in memory. So you need to use or minimize textures. And also if you're seeing crashes on your mobile games, uh, it's because of like memory usage almost always and not anything else. So we were able to detect pretty quickly what causes anything like that. And then like managing our texture usage and then also keeping polygons really low. Like basically everything was bespoke for the game and that let us manage very aggressively our memory usage and performance. The other thing is as an accelerator, you have access to Roblox employees that you wouldn't normally have. So we were able to ask very specific questions to employees about how the engine works or functions and like figure out like different non-intuitive things about memory. If you ask any real top Roblox developer who has like a popular game, you'll find they're all thinking really, really hard about how to deal with memory usage and like get these low end 
like devices playing their game. So basically there's no one simple solution to memory use for low-end devices. It's more of a holistic thing, like performance tends to be in general, but there's like many techniques that you can use to make it performance friendly. And a lot of the work, the invisible work that we've done is doing this and making it easy to program in this way. It's very technical, but it's also something you should really be thinking about, I guess. I think just having an appreciation from both sides that it is a struggle and that a lot of developers, as you say, spend a lot of time thinking about it. You know, amateur devs and people who, who develop on the platform full time. So they're definitely not alone if they're having memory problems. Well, downscaling your, your textures is the one-click solution. But then the second one-click solution is turning on streaming and then hoping your programs are programmed correctly for that. And by hoping, I mean, you should just program with streaming enabled on, even if you're not going to leave it on for the final game. Well, that's all we have time for today. So thank you very much for joining us, Quentin. Is there anything that you'd like our listeners to check out, like any links or social media? You can check out my Twitter, which is like Quinty, Q-U-E-N-T-Y. There's also my like portfolio is Quinty.org. But yeah, I don't know. Feel free to message me on Discord or if you don't have me added on Discord, like open source Discord is a very helpful place as long as you observe the rules. Well, listeners can find links to your social media in the description of this episode and I'll also pop a link to the open source Discord as well. Beyond the Blocks is brought to you by Bantech Systems, a development studio on Roblox. You can support our media content by heading to the Bantech Media Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Bantech. Thank you to our executive producer, OneTrackMinded, for supporting us and for helping to produce our episodes alongside the Bantech Media team. And thank you for listening. I'll see you next time on Beyond the Blocks.